This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit the Progressive website to quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, then their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. All you need to do is choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. AI is making waves in every field it touches. President Biden is now on TikTok and the election draws closer each day. With so much going on in the world, it is hard to keep up with it all, let me tell you. Hi, I'm Kai Rizdal, the co-host of Make Me Smart. It's a podcast from Marketplace. And every weekday, Kimberly Adams and I break down the latest in business and the economy with short daily episodes to make it easy for you to stay in the know. Listen to Make Me Smart wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And... The Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here on this biggest morning of all mornings with our digital director, Mike Hogan. Hello, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie Rich. It's Oscar nominations morning. I don't know about you guys, but I always go into it thinking like, ah, I'm a reasonable and thoughtful person and I don't care about this. And then something happens that surprises me and like my palms start to sweat and I get, it's really, it's an intense feeling watching the Oscar nominations <laughs> like every year for genuinely me. genuinely emotional about it. And I, and I did not expect that. <laughs> Yeah, same. And for me, we'll, we'll get into it. It was when I realized that by the power of alphabetical order, by the time Florence Pugh's name had been announced in Supporting Actress, that meant Jennifer Lopez wasn't getting in. That was when I like my stomach flipped and it all went downhill from there. Um, we should probably start at the top. Joker got the most Oscar nominations. It got 11, uh, just ahead of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in 1917 with 10. 11 is among the most Oscar nominations you can get. It's hard to get many more than that. So it was a really big morning for Joker in Best Picture. Um, so uh, discuss, group. Well, it's a funny thing, you know, and it just speaks, I think, to the way that, you know, people like us process these things versus how uh, awards body voters do I feel like we had the Joker discussion, you know, I saw it in Venice, I reviewed it there, we talked about it on the podcast um, that week, which was like right before, after Labor Day, I believe. And then, you know, the movie was in Toronto and more critic-y kind of journalist people saw it. We had that conversation, the movie came out and we were like, well, that's a wrap on Joker. It's an, It was never a wrap <laughs> on Joker, obviously. Like, clearly that movie has meant something, you know, it's like won the Venice Film Festival. Like, that that movie has had legs that I think, you know, I, will, I won't speak for, for you three, but for, for myself at least, like, I kind of just, I didn't forget it existed, but I just sort of assumed my sort of over itness with that movie was shared by other people. And clearly it's not. And I think that was a kind of sobering reminder this morning. I have a couple thoughts about this. Um, one, how much of this do we think is crusty Academy voters uh, being like, you can't tell me how to think about a movie, Twitter. But what a weird like flag to rally around Joker. Like that's, that's a weird like 
no, by gum, I'm going to like this movie. Number two, how much does this have to do with how much money Joker made? You know, like money, like the Academy rewarding movies that can still get people to come to the theater. Like that seems like, you know, a thing to do. And then number three, my, my like deep state theory, like how much of this is like mud in your eye to Marvel in any way? Like this got more nominations by far right than black Panther. And this, that was the last time Marvel sort of felt like in major contention for this. And so I don't know, I don't know, maybe it has nothing to do with that, but um, I have questions. I want to continue my argument with you, Joanna, if you don't mind. Um, Oh, please. And on the one hand, I'm I'm inclined to say, like, I just think we all overinterpret Twitter's impact in general because voters just aren't on it, most of them. But obviously some of them are. And then I do think that these arguments become, you know, people become ambiently aware of the arguments whether they're there or not, right? If if the if the heated argument is taking place there, it's being represented in all kinds of things, including lots of articles. So actually, to, in defense of your point, by the time I watched it, the movie was out. And as we discussed at the time, like, that's exactly what I did. I spent the entire movie just, just rebutting, you know, critiques that I had heard of it, which made me like it more than I probably would have, you know, in the absence of anything. So I, I do think it's an interesting question of how this, the, like, the discourse affects these things. I do I do think that there is a a kind of sense among the academy, certain academy members of like, we'll handle this, thank you very much. This is our choice to make, not yours. But I also think there's probably a bigger portion than we might imagine of people in the absence of that in, in a kind of vacuum from all of that just being like, wow, that's a dang picture. You know, and, right. uh, and 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 if anything, saying how interesting that you know comic book movies have taken over our whole world, and most of them I can't relate to at all, and I don't know what the hell is happening. But this one looks like an old Scorsese movie, so it's made for me, so I like it. You know, um, so I I don't know. I think it's I think it's it is interesting. It, I I am surprised it led the nominations and looking through you know basically every every crafts thing you could imagine. Um, and obviously it's a well crafted film. You know, it's 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 uh, I don't know well crafted. I was gonna say beautiful. I don't know. It's dark. It's darkly will, beautiful. It, it has like supple aesthetics. I mean, it yeah. it, it looks great. You know. Um, even though yeah. it's supposed to look kind of squalid and dark, and, and it does, but that it's successful in that attempt. You know? But it is kind of wild to think how many voters there were who were just like right down the line, you know, party line, like Joker, 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 Joker. Right, like, wow. like, right. Like me voting in New York elections, DDD. And I'm not even sure we're arguing, Mike, because I I mean, I said Twitter, but like, you know, what's really true is that there were just, you know, a million think pieces, you know, beyond Twitter. And in fact, like, you know, the online community, a lot of them really, really liked Joker. So it's not it's sure. not really that like, you know, um the fans didn't like it, but that there were like so many critics who are like, this is not just a movie I don't like, but a movie that I think is actively damaging to the discourse. And we've seen a couple times, like I think Green Book is a good example last year, of the Academy maybe being defiant about that uh yeah. narrative. I think I so. think it gets their back up. Uh you might even say it triggers them. When they are told <laughs> that they are not allowed to like something because that would be bad, and and it, you know if it feels like they're being they're being sort of shamed or or moralized to from the left, I think that does right. actually produce a a uh, reaction somewhat. A brief ray of sunshine. We can also thank Joker as probably putting off a best 
popular film Oscar for yet another year um, because Black mm. Panther did it for it last year. Joker's the ninth highest grossing domestic film of the year as kind of the person who always wants the jo- the, Os- the Jokers, the Oscars to be a little bit more populist. <laughs> you just renamed uh, them. <laughs> <laughs> He's done it again. Um, the fact that uh, Joker and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and then also Knives Out, which got a, a screenplay nomination as these very large box office hits are in there. Um, I'm always glad to see it, even if Joker is. Yeah, no, I think so. I think, I think for me, you know, kind of trying to analyze who's paying attention to what, what is a referendum on what, what is a response to what. I My sneaking suspicion, the longer that I kind of do this, you know, armchair analysis uh, professionally, is that like only a sliver of voters in anybody, be it the HFPA or the Academy or critics groups or whoever, is really actually paying attention to that discourse. I think for the most part, people are just responding to the movie, you know, and yeah, I think you're probably whatever right. we think about, and I think there are definitely not, that's not to disagree with Mike or Joanna. But uh, I think there are definitely people in the Academy who are listening to that stuff. I've spoken to Academy voters, not this year but years past, who you know sort of spoke openly about like, well, I didn't like that that movie was being you know unfairly maligned in the press or whatever. I think that's definitely contingent, but I think for the most part, um, people are watching it in a bit more of a vacuum than that. And um, in that vacuum, I guess you know there's enough working for Joker, which is, you know, like we said, it looks great. Joaquin Phoenix is certainly doing a lot of acting, you know, in it. And it is a character who is known and is known to an Academy voter who's in his 80s and an Academy voter who's in her 30s. Uh, it, it, it's an iconic sort of, he, you know, he's 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 our sort of Norse Loki god. I mean, he, like, he, you know, he's part of our pantheon. And so you have that kind of trusted, in a way, IP uh, that then gets a new sort of take. You know, I, I don't know. I think that there's a lot going for that movie as being a sort of interesting reimagining of a sort of totem of, of American culture. And uh, I can understand to some extent why a lot of people would, would flock to that and, and, and think it was uh, a worthy thing. On the one hand, like, I... I don't want to f- sound too stubborn uh, about something that I don't have any concrete evidence to back up. But on the other hand, I do think that two of the biggest conversations that permeated even the most like I live in a bubble and don't, you know, read the online discourse uh, Hollywood player is the superhero Marvel conversation only because, you know, when Martin Scorsese pens an op ed in The New York Times, that sort of like, it, you know, that shows you how long, how far this conversation has gone and then the disney the disney merger swallowing all of hollywood thing i mean i just think that those are things in the water for everyone in hollywood right now concerned about wanting to get people into the theaters and whether or not that actually has a one-to-one you know anything to do with someone nominating the joker i don't know but um you know but but i but i do think i i I do wonder how many people were like, come on, Marty, like, give us a break. We're all trying to make a living out here. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and also, I mean, but also if we want to think about it in those kind of terms, Todd Phillips has made a lot of people in Hollywood a lot of money, you know, uh, from the Hangover movies to comedies. But prior to that, like, you know, he's had a couple of movies since the Hangover that have not really kind of hit. But like, you know, he is known. He's an entity. And people watching a sort of hometown guy in a way you know, make his art film essentially and have it be a financial success and, you know, actually in aggregate a critical success. Uh, that's that's a narrative that I think people in the industry can root for and, and, and are able to tune out a lot of what people who aren't in the industry or are sort of adjacent to the industry like us um, are kind of 
you know, barking at them about, about, you know, I think that they can just be like, oh, no, this is a great story and it, it was a hit and good for him. I know? think that's a great point. He is the dream, right? Yeah. Like, he started out making goofball comedies and converted into auteur. Like, that is, that's... He birthed like his Peter baby. Like Peter Farrelly last yeah. year. Yeah. Exactly. I yeah. mean, it's, wow. a, it's a narrative there you go. people like. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, it's also crazy. Yeah, you know, we all heard Bradley Cooper's name right aloud this morning. Todd Phillips produced *The Star Is Born*, so he got a Best Picture nomination last year, and Bradley Cooper produced *Joker*, so he got a Best Picture nomination this year. Like they're just swapping back and forth. Bradley Cooper's now got like nine Oscar nominations total, and has never won anything, which is wild. Well, and also Zach Galifianakis uh, produced *Little Women*, so uh, oh yeah, so well, big congratulations, Zach. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new uh, translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. Really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I'm, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. <laughs> he can't stop. I mean, and, and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. <laughs> <laughs> we hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. <laughs> All right, so we're talking, there's a million other ways to go from here. We talked about kind of a middle finger to Marty. I do want to talk about The Irishman and maybe Netflix as a whole in here. The Irishman did just fine. I think it got nine nominations by my count, um, including the acting nominations that we thought it would. Robert De Niro didn't get in. We kind of knew that was coming. Um, But it doesn't feel like a huge contender anymore the way that it did even a couple weeks ago, even with that nominations haul. Um, does Does it feel as kind of, or why do I feel like it's been kind of weakened by this news? Is it just like that it didn't get a couple of crafting or is it something else? I think that the continual, you know, snubbing or whatever you want to call it of De Niro is evidence that that movie does not have coalition support. You know, like it does not mm-hmm. have. I think that if that was a kind of more of a watershed movie this year uh, for, for awards voters, like he would be in every single one of those conversations. Yes, enough people voted to get both supporting actors in there. So, like, there is support for it, obviously. It got Best Picture, it got Best Director. But, like, I don't know. I think that that movie's momentum is sort of, you know, illustrated by De Niro being blanked uh, kind of consistently in that category. I I mean, I think the Globes shouldn't but did impact the look of the race. Uh You know, the fact that that Scorsese sat there and didn't get anything all night. Um, I think the 1917 sort of surge is not good for the Irishman because they're both these sort of like weighty kind of male, you know, I mean, there's a lot of weighty male stuff this year. Um, And some skinny male stuff. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I don't know. I mean, it does have a lot. I mean, it has like most of the main things you'd want, editing, screenplay, director, um, and two supporting actor nominations. I mean, that was yeah. that was nice to see Pesci and Pacino get in there. So I don't I, I think there's still time. I think there is time for Netflix. I don't think Netflix has done what it needs to do, and this is not the first time I'm talking about this either on the podcast, in terms of framing why you know it's urgent to to give an, a big award to Scorsese for this movie. Um, but I, but I think that the Best Picture race is still mixed enough that there's time to do that. 
you know, I mean, I, I've right. I mean, looking at Best Picture, it's not immediately obvious. It, no. I, I certainly don't think Joker is is a slam dunk by any means. I think 1917, you know, is not necessarily a slam dunk uh, either. Nor is Once Upon a Time on Hollywood. I think it's still a fairly open race. That feels like the biggest category with the you know, biggest question marks around it, right? At this point. Yeah, I feel I would say Once Upon a Time in Hollywood versus 1917 versus Parasite in the top three spots. And I don't it feels like it could go in many different directions and truly any of those three could win Best Picture and it would feel plausible. With with the Irishman, this feels like the third or fourth year uh, that we've been doing this podcast that there's been like a movie out of New York that got this rhapsodic reaction that just didn't hit Hollywood in the same way. Right. Like what are like Roma being last year's or the post, um, and, uh, Selma. Like, I, like, I feel like there will be <laughs> these like New York screenings and then like, everyone's like, this is it. We found it. This is the movie. And then Hollywood's like, eh, yeah, it's all right. You know what I yeah. mean? Like that's, I don't know. Yep. It seems to be a trend. So. I'm also now kind of going back to what you were saying, Joanna, about the Joker in terms of like people considering politics. I'm also I'm kind of wondering like is De Niro's constant like he's a motherfucker about Trump like it, like I know that, that that's not a hugely Trump supporting voting body in the Academy, but like I don't do do you think people were sort of like shut up Bob like you know like do you think they were annoyed mm. by him or something I don't know I think they're well I think there's an insecurity in Hollywood about about being too political and yeah and turning off the audience so maybe. I feel like Maybe, if anyone's earned it, it's De Niro, but sure. still, yeah, I don't yeah. know. This guy, he's a nut. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, I love it. It's so funny. It's, you know, yeah. Um, and I was watching the nominations come in when Parasite showed up in production design and editing. I got really excited. Uh, Parasite I, was my favorite movie of last year. It does feel like this weird X factor. It's the first South Korean film to ever be nominated for any Oscars, which is really thrilling. Um, and it g- did get that craft support. Like it could have gotten Best Picture, Best Director in Foreign Language Film. We've been like, okay, yeah, that's what we expected. But it did better than that, which has me kind of bullish on it, especially with Best Picture being so fuzzy right now. It'd be great. Uh, what a, I I feel like that would be a really crowd pleasing. I have like I haven't talked to anyone who's seen it who doesn't think it's great. So you know, it's a hit. It, it's a hit. It's a true hit. And um and just it would be nice to not have a divisive winner. But you know, it doesn't it doesn't have to be pleasing to me uh, to be a good win. But yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I think I think that's a really a really good sign. It's a uh, it's too bad there are no acting nominations in there. Um, I don't know what the statistics are on like a a film winning best picture without a single acting nomination. Um but that that is a disappointment uh I think today. But I do think yes, I think if we're looking for wins or things that are cool and fun and square with like I think the vision that some of us have for the Oscars like Parasite coming through with with the big 3 nominations well, the big two of picture and, and director, in addition to um, foreign and having editing, um, that's really that's really exciting. Screenplay and cool too. And that and was screenplay. Uh, I mean, yeah. it really has. Actually, it's interesting if you look at editing, where some people say you can't win best picture without editing. It's Ford v Ferrari, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, and Parasite. So, I mean, that's yeah, that's a wild. Once upon a time in Hollywood not being in there really surprised me. And 1917 not being in there. Yeah. Well, you know they had to plan all those edits way ahead of time. It's a, like the editing on 1917 is so different from anything. Bird, <laughs> Birdman also wasn't um, nominated for best editing and it won but best But wait, picture. are we really, are we really buying the idea that this was like an easy movie to edit? I don't think it's, a, it's, it, I was, there was a, a kind of tweet discussion about this yeah. last night. I think it's, it's that 
you know, a lot of people, especially I think in the editing branch of the academy, think that editing is where the story is told. And if you plan out everything so meticulously to look like there is no editing, yeah. they think, oh, that's not that's not our job. The, movie is, yeah, the it, movie is it an won, assault on editing. Right. <laughs> it, won the, it won the Critics' Choice Award for editing last night. And then, yeah, I saw a bunch of uh, folks on Twitter kind of salty about that, being like, oh, a voting body that doesn't understand the art of editing, I see. Um, so according to Vox, the last film to win Best Picture without a single acting nomination was Slumdog Millionaire. So oh. that's 2008. Not so long not, ago. Not so long ago, no. Well, yeah. and somewhat uh, similar situation there where you had a cast that was not known to Hollywood and, mm-hmm. you know, would be would become, but not at the time. Yeah. Yeah. That was that was a pretty feel good movie compared to Parasite, though. Um, I don't True. know. Like, I don't know what the, what the Slumdog Millionaire was, you know, very cheerful at the end of Parasite. So a little bit more of a downer. <laughs> there um, should have been a Bollywood dance at the end of Parasite. <laughs> I see. I see. Not too late to re-release with that new ending. I so, would actually yeah. love that. <laughs> the Snyder cut um, of Parasite. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, what else are you guys happy about today? I feel like we should get into some of the mm. like very glaring disappointments. But what 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 excited you in this list? Uh, I think I wrote about this in our Snubs and Surprises post. I, I think it's cool that Honeyland got two nominations, one for International Feature, which is the retitled um, Foreign Language, and also Documentary. I think it's it's super rare that a documentary gets into that um, used-to-be foreign language category. And I think that the fact that it's in both those categories whoever was doing the nominating was paying attention. They were that, that you know, that, that's a movie that I think probably is a hard screener set because it's about a woman alone in Macedonia, like that people show up eventually, but like, you know, it's, it, it's not, it's not initially a very engaging movie in, in, in its way, but, um, that made me really happy and made me think that if, if, you know, at the very least there are some thinking people in the Academy. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something you championed too, Richard, it was on your top 10 list of the year. So that was why I had heard about it. Um, oh, it's so why it got in because of you. me. It's yeah, because the, the, the of the Congratulations. I did have a Best Documentary Feature winner of an Oscar last year let me hold her Oscar at the VF party and tell me that this is partly yours. So, I'm just saying. Wow. Um, I will say it wasn't like a massive surprise, but I was really happy to see Florence Pugh get her Mm, nomination. I was surprised. I was happy. Yeah, I was really, really happy to see that. I mean, we'll talk about the Best Supporting Actors category, but... um, Nothing to really talk about there, though. I don't... I I think that Florence Pugh had... Florence Pugh had such a great, great year and so i'm really happy to see this like welcoming her into hollywood yeah the performance of little women overall and we can talk about the best director race although i had i had definitely given up thinking greta gerwig would get in there but after all the reporting that anthony breskin did about how men just weren't seeing little women i had totally braced myself for a best picture snub for not being anywhere so the fact that it got in for screenplay picture and the two acting nominations i was really relieved yes i would agree with that and I guess relief also is is my feeling about Cynthia Revo coming in to just you know make this not like a completely egregious uh, year, although it came <laughs> very close. Other, yeah, it came <laughs> within a within uh, a yeah. We, let, let's let's yeah. talk about it. We came way closer than comfort to another Oscar so white year, which would have been a disaster. Like I mean, it's still pretty disastrous. The fact that you have one actor of color uh, and um, notably left out Jennifer Lopez. Like I mean, I. I would hope that the Academy would do some soul searching after this, but also after all the efforts to diversify the membership, like I'm not sure what else they can do. It's, it feels like such a mess. Here is where I think that defiance 
to think pieces comes in. I think in the acting categories, the actors who do this nominating are like, no, it is about who is the best this year. I'm not going to play by these sort of, you know, quota games and these percentiles, whatever. I think I think that's where you see some of the stubbornness, you know, being like, I'm not going to nominate someone just because she's, you know, uh, Latina or because, you know, whatever else, because they're Korean. You know, I, I think I think. Again, we're all just imagining, interpreting here, but like that—that that to me feels where it's most pointed. Yeah, and th- and then I feel like it, the next thing that happens is that that same person is not examining any of their own sort of, well, of course, you know, yeah. assumptions, right? And yeah. and so movies that are about men shooting each other, like our Oscar movies, and movies that are about women, you know, using their bodies to make money and scam people, are not mm-hmm. Oscar movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and on down the line. And and I feel like you know that would be a good maybe productive conversation to have next about like what what do we really you know want to use this annual opportunity to celebrate art for you know right. is it just to kind of say like no big epic movies about like combat are are what we are here for or or are we trying to like continue to evolve what cinema does and how it speaks to people so um, I don't know. And it's, I mean, it's tricky because we're four, we're four very white people talking about like, you know, the, the question of diversity, um, in these acting nominations or any of these nominations. But, um, so I will just tread lightly and reflect some conversations that I've been seeing from, um, people of color saying that they're especially frustrated this year about what kind of roles for people of color, women of color specifically, that the Academy is comfortable nominating. And Cynthia Revo playing um, Harriet Tubman is a kind of role that the Academy has felt comfortable nominating, whereas something like Lupita's performance in Us, um, you know, is not necessarily. So Yeah, and those are know. biases that exist for actors of all race. I think the idea that you play an important historical figure in a biopic is an easy route to a nomination, playing like someone, uh, like a stripper in a you know pseudo-comedy that's set in the present, like isn't as much um but yeah it, it becomes even harder on actresses of color people of color because they have so few opportunities to jump up to the oscars in the first place um, oh i'm so not those talking get in the way i'm not talking about playing like a unknown person i'm talking about like women of color black women specifically being nominated for playing people associated with slave narratives like uh, that's yes, the conversation that too, that too. Yeah. so um, I mean, so Mark Harris wrote about Jennifer Lopez's snub in his piece that I thought was really interesting. And like just pointing out that, you know, she played a character who used her sexuality as a professional survivor tool and didn't regret it. What the Academy wants is for her to scrub off her makeup and play a poor mother dying of something who tries to find someone to take care of her kids. They want a role that says, look how serious I am. Look how willing I am to punish myself for you, um, which I think is right. And, you know, she what was so powerful about her performance was that it was this incandescent like star persona embracing of who she was and for someone who like hasn't been taken as seriously as she deserves to be the whole time like it, you know brad pitt did something really similarly in once upon a time in hollywood but for so many other reasons that was taken seriously and this wasn't i also think you have to as we often do get in the mind of someone with the screener pile and let's say you're an older academy voter the fact that Kathy Bates got nominated for Richard Jewell means a lot more people watch that screener than they watch Hustlers, I think. Yeah. Not that Kathy Bates is not yeah. good in that movie. She's good in that movie. But it just speaks to the likelihood of what people are going to watch. And I think Hustlers, I've mentioned it 18,000 times on this podcast, but that guy saying in line to me in Toronto, I prefer art films when I said I like Hustlers. Right. It, it, yeah. It's that kind of mentality. And I just think, you know, I think Richard Jewell is a, getting that well, nomination. And, and it's a, Clint Eastwood has cloud. And you mm-hmm. just think, like, we we got to get to a place where, you know, 
there are women directors who have that kind of clout where you're like, you have to watch the, you know, whatever right. it is, the Greta Gerwig movie. Like, you can't say it's not for me. Like, it's for everybody. Or you yeah. institute something, and it's a lot harder to do with a huge voting body that is scattered across the world. Uh, you do something like the Tonys do. You cannot vote for the Tonys unless you have been registered as seeing every single thing eligible. Like, they, they, they're, they're, you have to, like, check in with somebody when you go see those oh, things wow. if you're a Tony yeah. voter. Which that. then creates yeah. a whole other I know, I mean, thing. It's, but it's yeah. not that it would ha- I mean, they would never be able to institution, you know, make that a thing. But, like, again, it's all arbitrary. But, like, it is just, I don't know. I would, uh, one more uh, thing on this is friend of the pod, um, Chris Rosen, uh, G-chatted me to say another thing is that STX um, didn't really have any money. <laughs> To get yeah. To, well, yeah. to support yeah, hustlers, enough. so there's yeah. that too. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's all it's all complicated, but anyway, it's not a good outcome. The um, and if you know, I definitely held uh, Baptist feet over the fire for double nominating actresses. So I gotta say, double nomination for Scarlett Johansson. Like I'm a huge champion of Scarlett Johansson for Marriage Story. I definitely think she should get that nomination. I think that was an incredible performance. I like Scarlett. I think she's great. Nominating the same actress twice while shutting other people out is just hard to see, I think. So. I really like her in Jojo Rabbit. I, I'm with you that especially given that Jennifer Lopez or uh, Susan Zhao for The Farewell, like there's like a lot of people I would like to see in there. Um, it's, it's a tough call. Yeah, the double nomination thing, it's like, it's just, I mean, I know, but this is not how people think because it's all done, you know, everyone's doing it in their own privacy. It's not. It's not, there's not a conversation, a collective thing where they're like, let's do this to prove a point. But like, yeah, the, the double nominations are when there were so many other people who could have taken one of those slots. It just feels a little bit like, ugh. even though I like Johansson in both those movies. Yeah. Um. Hey, I'm Brian Stelter, host of Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. This week, with the help of Dan Adler and Olivia Nuzzi, we're going inside the media circus swirling around Donald Trump's criminal trial. People want coverage of Donald Trump. There are sort of shades of 2015, 2016. I found it to be a a total break from the reaction to a lot of Trump coverage in the last two years. Join me, Brian Stelter, on Inside the Hive from Vanity Fair. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Richard, are you feeling, when we were talking earlier this morning, you were feeling kind of bummed out about the entire process of it. Um, (laughs) I feel like I've gone like back and forth on like whether or not these are depressing or great because because it's the Oscars. Every time they're going to nominate some stuff that you love and they're going to nominate some stuff that you hate. I mostly feel okay about this. I think largely because I mostly like 1917. Um, But I mean, Richard, thematically, where have you landed? Well, I was thinking about it on my slow train commute into the city. Um, I think what's frustrating for me and a little bit depressing, and this is something that I felt voting for Critics Awards this year, is that this is all pretty arbitrary and it's all down to unique tastes and and individual taste. And and if there is any sort of collective consciousness about how these awards should go or what should be nominated or should win, it's largely unspoken. Um, It's subconscious. It's, you know, it's whatever it is. And I think that what that tells me that I find kind of dispiriting is that like these kind of oversights and this kind of homogeny in terms of of who gets nominated for what is not an active effort. It's an unconscious one. And it's one that makes that makes it that much harder to combat. Yeah. You know, and and, uh, you know, I wish that I had gone to one of these critics votes and there had been 
vocalizing of we're not going to, you know, like I wish that someone had just, people had come out and said, we have an agenda. And that doesn't get said. It's not, it, it, it's, it's not something I think people are even necessarily always conscious of. It's just something that happens in aggregate when you put this many people who are, you know, this disproportionately, whatever, you know, male or white or whatever, uh, you know, into this thing. And I think that's what's kind of a bummer for me this morning is just realizing that, like, this is not an intractable problem. This is a fixable issue. This is an issue that can be addressed, but it just takes a lot more work than, um, you know, a sort of, like, changing hearts and minds campaign. it's, It's more about, it's just ever more about, like, who is doing the decision making. It reminds me, actually, now that you mention it, put it that way, of the Democratic Party, to be honest. Oh, no! Where the Democratic Party is frequently... When you meet people who are, like, professional, you know, long-standing whatever people who work on in democratic politics they are often very defensive and you know somebody like elizabeth warren or bernie they're just kind of like you can't do that if you do that we will lose all our voters and then we'll be dead like you may think that's a good idea and i feel like there is somewhere in the academy this kind of notion of like we got we got to get people out to the theater and make sure the ratings are up on the oscars like you guys want to attack all these other issues those are too complicated for us like we don't have we don't have the freedom to move that way and it, and it's a weird sort of conservatism that happens on the kind of like center left um, in, in general these days. I, obviously, we're going through interesting times of disruption and stuff, but it, it's a similar, it's kind of like, oh, sure, we'd all love to have that happen, but have you thought through the consequences type of mentality that's also hard to you know change? And it drives you crazy, really, when you come up against it because because I don't know, it, it's just, it's not, it's not like actively like, no, we're against that. It's more like we agree, but here's why it's not going to yeah. happen. Yeah, I think I think there's also the um, to your point, Mike, there's this there's no narrative, I think, that will make awards bodies happier than the Golden Globe going to 1917 and then 1917 having a much bigger than expected opening weekend at the box office. You know, it makes like, oh, you know, voting awards bodies feel like they still have like relevance. And yes, we can still like urge people to go see these movies that we have conferred importance upon and stuff like that. And, uh, and so that kind of like, that's the, the movement and the power that I think that they want to have more than anything else, the ability to shine a light on something and say, yes, this is important and have people buying tickets be like, yes, this is important. We will see it because you said so sort of thing. Yeah. I think there's a feeling of being custodians of this business and, and that, you know, at the end of the day, like you gotta, you've got to make certain compromises in order to like keep the people coming and buying tickets. I, it, that seems just like this year, for some reason, that really feels like a strong flavor of, of how people are mm-hmm. thinking. And I just think, I think that like, I mean, obviously there are, I'm sure there are active assholes in the academy, but I think yes, that there for are, the most actually, part. actually there are too. Yeah. But I think, <laughs> but I think for the most part, no one voter is like thinking in those I, I don't think they're like I'm gonna do this it's I think it's more just like well I like that I like that I like that and the problem is is that sort of default unconscious setting gets repeated you know in iterations throughout the academy when these votes happen because the academy is by and large so homogeneously made up of white people or men you know whatever and and so not not very few of those single voters are are thinking 
menacingly toxically about this. It's just that like one, you know, one kind of well, this is what I like kind of un, you know, unthinking or whatever un, unprogressive if you want to call it that vote gets exponentially increased when you have 6000 of them or however many right. vote on each category. So, I don't know. I it was just it's just kind of this thing of like there's a lot of work to be done and at the same time like it's not Kathy Bates' fault. <laughs> you know. Like, yeah. It, no. You know, it's yeah. it's it's that sort of tough kind of re- reconciliation with and I think a justified outrage um but also an understanding that like this work takes time and it's also like um no one thing is the kind of bogeyman and all that I don't think. Yeah. And I can under I mean I also think that real equality would mean that there would just be more easy wins across the board. I mm-hmm. feel like a lot of white dudes just get waved through like, oh, it was pretty good. Like, and it's, you mm-hmm. know, X. Like, he's always great. Let's let's throw him a nomination. Whereas Lupita has to be at like a hundred and fifty percent, you know, all cylinders firing. Like 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 you're just not getting there's a few people maybe like Denzel may, maybe has that that um status, but like not enough people. I don't know. It's just, yeah. it, I think you can argue the meritocracy, but like, it's never really a meritocracy, you know? It's no, a that's what this entire contest. show is about. That it's like the, like finding all the reasons that it's not a meritocracy. Yeah, I think you're right. But it, like, it's the idea that there are people who reach a certain level where they get considered no matter what, like you get Oscar buzz, like Quentin Tarantino gets Oscar buzz no matter what. Uh, and the number of women or people of color who get that, whether actors or directors is vanishingly small and getting more like I think Greta Gerwig is in that collection and that is part of why Little Women succeeded the way that it did today to the extent that it did but it just has to get bigger and it's taking forever and that's why we get frustrated every year yes should we talk about Bombshell which is a movie (laughs) that like I kind of thought had disappeared from the conversation I like I know that both Charlize and Margot have been like in the conversation this whole time but I still wouldn't have been surprised if they hadn't been nominated and like so what went right there for those nominations. It's a good, easy screener I mean, watch, right? I mean, yeah. entertaining, and it's something, without people and you it's, know. And it's a high concept, so you're like, yeah. oh, okay, I want to see the movie where Charlie Theron is back and Kelly is, mm-hmm. you know, even Parasite is a little bit harder to explain, although clearly people watch that too. Um, I mean, they like Charlie Theron and Margot Robbie. I think both of them are pretty good in that movie. Again, mm-hmm. like, yeah. whose space are they taking and, like, whether or not that's, that's what should be there. Um, it's like a space got reserved for them and they never got knocked out of it because I do think it's harder if like people mentally clear a space for you ahead of time and then like it's harder to get knocked out of that than it is to work your way up um the way that like you know Cynthia Revo, I think a lot of people counted Harriet out and she worked her way into that that's a much harder thing than to lose the spot that people save for you I much preferred the 1994 version where, where Nona Ryder played um Megan Kelly I thought that I don't know I just call me a purist or I mean I guess you know the, the Elizabeth Taylor one is good too but uh, uh, I mean I think I think Charlize's nomination is she does i mean she's good in the film she's quite good in the film and i think that um that whole thing of like what gary oldman did with winston churchill like that's a that's a proven winner i think that the Margot nomination um is really probably comes down to that moment where she's being humiliated mm-hmm. by roger ailes john lithgow as roger ailes um that's like- pretty amazing and as a movie that felt kind of flat to me, that scene really stood out for, you know, being horribly uncomfortable, but really well acted. Yeah, I think that's probably, you know, the same way that Kathy Bates' scene where she's kind of like tip on tiptoes to get over the microphone crying, talking about her son. Like, that's that's where you're like, oh, mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, yeah. I think that's Margot's mm-hmm. scene. And she also has that kind of cathartic scene toward the end where she's on the phone and she cries and kind of just like 
not yeah. I mean she kind of says what, what, how she's feeling and 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 in doing so gives voice to so many uh women and 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 just talking about Margot and yeah, Bombshell yeah, yes. yeah. that like she almost kind of she says what people have been thinking in a way that like and 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 in that moment is is powerful I, I I think it's a I think it's a justified nomination I also think that like it didn't hurt that she had you know uh, Sharon Tate also this year you know last yes. year like mm-hmm. like I, I for me that's not I, she's not the one of the supporting people who I would be like hey about um I mean that's the thing is it's like I wouldn't I mean I don't know they're all good it's it's not it's not it's not again it's not their fault <laughs> right <laughs> It's like the um, you're Robin Williams in Goodwill Hunting yeah. telling Matt Damon <laughs> it's yeah. not your exactly. fault. Yeah. I, we're going to talk about who's going to win for the next couple of weeks. Um, I do still feel like we could wind up with a really good set of Oscar winners, um, which is a nice thing to think about. Um, that, that is I, nice again, to think about, may, yes. maybe I'm like overly optimistic, but I don't know. Like, wh- what are you guys be looking for over the next few weeks as this develops? Um, I've become weirdly invested, even though I'm. I don't know what I am about Joker, but like uh, Hildur Guanadotter, the uh, the um, yeah the composer. The, the composer who won the Golden Globe. Like I think she would become the third woman to win a score Oscar. Um, I'm kind of kind of invested in that. Uh, yes. I think that would be cool. She, and she you know, seems so nice at the Golden Globes. Yeah, <laughs> it really yeah. made made me root for her. Um, She's Icelandic. Our colleague Kiara, we need to get her on the um, podcast to like really truly pronounce her name. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I'm but, sure I just uh, butchered it. No, but it, yeah. we're, we're it's getting probably there. like Hilder Smith. <laughs> we, by, by next week, we will all be experts. Yeah. Um, can we uh, just before I I, I, I want to hear what you guys are all excited for? But um, just I was noticing as I scrolled through, is it weird that um, Frozen Two didn't get an animated feature nomination? Joanna, this is your field. Hey, well, if you want to pick up our uh, awards issue that will be coming out, we have a story about this. Uh, yeah, this was this was a, you know, we we talked about this a little bit before on the podcast. This idea that the Into the Spider Verse win last year really emboldened a lot of other studios to really push to see if they could, you know, either get nominated or even win uh, the prize over Disney. Disney obviously has dominated this category for most of its entire existence, um, and so um, you know as members of voting bodies, which uh, a lot of us are on this podcast. Um, I don't know if you experienced this, Richard, but I got a lot of uh, promotional material for um, both of the Netflix titles and uh, the Leica title, Missing Link. And so I'm not I'm not surprised, honestly, to see them all in there. I am a little surprised that Frozen 2 didn't get nominated. I like I didn't think it would go that far, uh, but that's where we are. Uh, this, yeah, it was this like a battle morning. of the Disney sequels uh, yeah. and Toy Story edged out, um, which makes sense. Like Toy Story's got a pretty long-standing um, reputation in this category. Yeah, I was surprised too. And Frozen 2 still got in for song, which that would have been really nuts if it hadn't gotten in there. Even if the song race this year is kind of a ugh. They'll lose to Elton John. It's fine. And Beyonce didn't get into song. So Beyonce um, remains uh, snubbed by the Oscars. Yeah, but the Elton win... Uh, will be, you know, the representation of the beauty that it was, Rocket Man, uh, this uh, year. And I just, we couldn't get through this uh, episode without me saying that uh, Taryn and I will be taking the week off and going to Malta and just really relaxing <laughs> and, you know, taking a break from social media um, in light of this. No, I mean, like, I, I think I think Taryn winning the Globe and not getting nominated for the Oscar honestly sounds kind of right to me. Um, but I'm really glad that he won the Globe, so... Is I'm Gonna Love Me Again, which is a song for Rocketman, is that somehow a response to You're Gonna Love Me from Dreamgirls? <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, all, me. <laughs> it's all throwing dirt on Jennifer Hudson's oh, uh, Oscar buzz grave oh, from dear. Cats. 
Uh, uh, what about um, two popes? Yeah, hey, Katie. Well. Two hey. popes. You know what? I uh, again for all the like best actor was a tricky race. It would have. It's hard to like root for the two white guys who got nominated, given everything that we just talked about. But I do think. Uh, Jonathan Price getting his first Oscar nomination is something we can all get behind. Um, the Best Supporting Actor race is really wild. Anthony Hop- Hopkins got nominated for two popes. And so Best Supporting Actor, let me see if I can get it right. It's Brad Pitt plus Oscar winners from 90, 91, 92, 93. And I think also 93, 94 because Tom Hanks won twice. It's it's really a weirdly stacked like numerology thing. Um, so congratulations to Anthony Hopkins for, I don't know. Isn't that conspiracy when, theory? Well, okay, but uh, Christoph Waltz won his second uh, supporting actor Oscar the year when everyone nominated had won, right? Yeah. yeah. And this year, all but one have been not, have won, but Pitt is in a Tarantino movie like Christoph Waltz was, so Pitt's gonna win. <laughs> I don't know. Yes, I mean Pitt's gonna win, right? This is <laughs> you win. just like you're put on like, your like, tinfoil hat to figure <laughs> well, all I mean, that out. Yeah. The acting categories feel, I mean, you said we're not going to talk about who's going to win right now, but like the acting categories feel done, right? Yeah, done and they dusted. do. Yeah, I was going to say, I'm, I'm looking for any sign that Renee, um, you know, I guess I guess at this point, Joaquin, right? Like for a, a week ago, I would have said, or two weeks ago, I would have said it's Joaquin or Adam. At this point, it really strongly feels like Joaquin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Brad, Definitely. Um, uh, Renee, Renee and Laura and, Dern. Uh, Laura, mm-hmm. Right? Any sign that that's not the case will be very interesting, but I, at this point, I can't really no imagine. No one's beating any. I, mean, I think, yeah. yeah, I think my, my hope for uh, a shakeup there, and not that I, you know, am rooting against any of those people necessarily, but my hope for a shakeup there was like one of those big, like, surprising and exciting nominations in any of the acting categories. And I don't think we got those, right? Like Adam Sandler. Yeah. Or, or, right. Yeah. Or, or Eddie Murphy or yeah, something like that. So um, I think, I think we're like, Oh, they're all voting how we kind of thought they were going to a couple months ago. I see. Uh, with the exception of like sort of a parasite boom. Um, for me, you asked uh, a year ago, Katie, what we were looking forward to. Um, I'm on the 1917 train and I'm just going to ride it till the yeah. end. There we go. I've, I've picked my horse. It's going to be the bad guy. Like not everyone's tired of Joker being the bad guy. So now 1917 is going to be the new bad guy. So um, best of luck, Joanna. It's going to be, I also like 1917. We could band together. Great. But what do we think? Yeah. I mean, so you guys think that it's 1917 once upon a time in Hollywood and parasites race for picture for best I mean, picture. seems to me that, you can't actually count out Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, or Joker. Can you? Probably uh, not. I mean, yeah. I mean, anyone who, like, confidently says anything was going to happen at the Oscars is just, like, asking to be proven wrong. Um, I think Jojo Rabbit maybe would be the one I would count out the most of that list. Because um, I'm not sure what it's going to win of anything. Like, it right. feels like Jojo Rabbit could easily win no Oscars. Yeah. Um, yeah. And... God, maybe the same for Irishman, which is yeah. wild. Yeah. Um, so, it, like, in terms of, like, what you kind of see running through it, like, you know, 1917 and Joker have all these tactical nominations. So you kind of imagine one or one of them kind of running the table or them kind of splitting it amongst themselves. And then once upon a time in Hollywood and Parasite kind of having the most director buzz, like, it, it does feel like director would probably be Tarantino or Bong Joon-ho or maybe Sam Mendes. So that's what I think the director race is what, what tips it over in favor of those three in Best Picture. We need to get like an an MIT scientist in here to really talk about <laughs> tiered balloting because like I'm now thinking like okay but what's ever what's number two on everyone's ballots yes. that's what's gonna win yeah. And yeah. Yeah, yeah, I yeah. don't really know you know we need to get a, like a social social psychologist and a mathematician but you to gotta really start game it out. with what's number two on the ballots of people who's right. who have the least favorite right. least popular number one 
So right, I exactly. guess you're looking yeah. at, I don't know, either Ford, Ford versus Ferrari, Ferrari or Little, Little Women, Women. Or Marriage Story. Like, people who love those, what's their next that's, movie? That's yeah. exactly right. That's what I'm like passing Like, Ford versus that's, Ferrari are big studio films that, like, did pretty well at the box office. So does that mean they'll, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood better? Or, yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, Parasite honestly feels like a really strong number two you know, like like everyone liked it, and even if they don't put it number one, they would probably put it at number two. Yeah, you know what I mean. So I would always say the same thing for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, I think it's a little bit more divisive, but it has that like it employed half of Hollywood credit going for it. Um, but yeah, you can make a case <laughs> for either of those. I think in a in a dream world for me, right? Uh, Bong Joon Ho wins director, 1917 wins picture, and Tarantino gets his screenplay Oscar. And that that is a very Yahtzee. decent prediction you know so well guys are you ready to do three more weeks of this and then it'll be over so much faster than it usually is does it yeah. feel like it's going any faster than usual I'm just, I'm just gonna make katie saying that's a very decent prediction my ringtone and um feel, <laughs> you know, feel the glow of that approval for the rest of the oscars you know season. it's funny i'm going to sundance next week <laughs> like what like i just I, 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 are I, you I, ready I, for I, new movies I, I, apparently i'm gonna have a whole dispatch for about you know amy ryan's big oscar year in 2020 um, but Oof. yeah, this has been a very fast year and, uh, we're almost to the, to the end, which is exciting. Yeah. I like your optimism that like, despite my existential malaise about some of the nominees, like that there could still be a great show where like really good people win and, uh, exciting things happen. Uh, th th that possibility has been made, uh, possible <laughs> by, by these nominations, which at least... Yeah, you have to remind yourself, like, I'm excited for Laura Dern to have an Oscar. Like, her performance in Marriage Story has, like, been into such a steamroller that it's easy to forget that she doesn't already have an Oscar. So that's going to be really satisfying. Same with Brad Pitt. Same with a lot of these people. It's like a, how I need to write a th uh, an apology note to Alison Janney and be like, look, it's not you. It was the movie. I love you. Like, I, I'm not <laughs> mad that you have an Oscar. Uh, and I like Laura, I like Marriage Story, but, like, if Laura, I was so in the tank for J-Lo that, like, uh, now I have to just, like, reconcile that and be like, okay, like, Laura Dern's great. Yeah. Um, well, we'll be back for the next couple of weeks. Uh, I, our plan is to watch all the shorts again somehow yeah. in this uh, truncated season and then cover the SAGs, the DGA, the PGA. Uh, you know, J-Lo's playing the Super Bowl, so that's going to come in the middle yeah. of all this, although it's not going to be the Oscar campaign strategy that I once believed it would be. Um, so we'll have lots to talk about in the weeks to come. And then February is going to show up, and uh, then Richard will have seen next year's Best Picture winner at Sundance. It'll be yeah. fine. Uh, and I will be doing, once again, a recap of the Oscars 20 years ago, which unproblematically <gasps> oh is the American Beauty Kevin Spacey hey, year. Yay. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> so if you think this year's crop is bad, just wait for 20 years of hindsight Yikes. to tell you uh, which of this year's nominees you really have to hate. <laughs> Ooh, okay. Uh, well, that does it for this week's show. We'll be back next week. Um, find so much Oscars coverage at VanityFair.com from us and our incredibly smart colleagues. And there will be even more after we wrap this conversation. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men, where we love hearing from you and how you think of us when the nominations come out. Uh, and you can find us on our own. I'm at Katie Rich and Mike. Mike underscore Hogan. And Richard. Justice for J-Lo. Mm, and Joanna. <laughs> Uh, find me at Florence Pugh's Instagram because it is a delight and I hope you all uh, take a look at it. Uh, oh, I right will. Now. Yeah. This week's episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs and this week's award for the best preview of Sundance this year probably goes to Mike Hogan. I mean, there's a lot of weighty male stuff this year. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. 
But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR.